Hello and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. And today we're going to start with a story. Uh, Darnell woke up Saturday morning and began his day by brushing his teeth and taking a shower. After eating breakfast, Darnell watched TV for a while and talked on the phone. Then Darnell went to a nearby store and bought some groceries. Once he'd gotten home, Darnell received a text message from a friend inviting him to go out later. That night, Darnell went out to meet his friends at a bar. As he entered the crowded bar, he brushed against the shoulder of a man walking in the other direction. The man turned, glared at Darnell, and angrily said, Watch where you're going, asshole. Now, I want you to ask yourself, in your mind's eye, uh, what's Darnell's build? Is he a big guy? Small guy? What's his status? Is Darnell someone you describe as aggressive? How tall is Darnell? Uh, I'm going to tell you a slightly different story. Connor woke up Saturday morning and began his day by brushing his teeth and taking a shower. After eating breakfast, Connor watched TV for a while and talked on the phone. Then Connor went to a nearby store and bought some groceries. Once he had gotten home, Connor received a text message from a friend inviting him to go out later. That night, Connor went out to meet his friends at a bar. As he entered the crowded bar, he brushed against the shoulder of a man walking in the other direction. The man turned, glared at Connor, and angrily said, Watch where you're going, asshole. Ask yourself again. Connor's status, Connor's height, Connor's build, Connor's aggressiveness. What do you picture? So when this very particular experiment was done with different groups and different controls, generally speaking, um, someone named Jamal, Deshaun, or Darnell was invariably considered to be larger in size and more aggressive than Connor, Wyatt, or Garrett, which were the other names they used for this experiment. Um... Uh, in fact, the larger in size the black-sounding character was imagined to be, the lower was his imagined financial success and social status. He was also considered more violent um, than the characters with white-sounding names. If they were thought of as larger, they were also considered to be higher status, you know, have a higher-paying job, what have you. Now, the irony here, of course, is that these stereotypes, these characters who are being imagined as more violent, are in fact, statistically, far more likely to be the victims of violence, precisely because of the prejudices and stereotypes that are being projected by, I hear this black-sounding name and I'm suddenly imagining this violent character. And that's kind of what today's episode is about, is what's in a name and the amazing amount of uh, prejudice and bias that can be packed just into a name. Um, and what's really interesting here, before you start thinking this is purely some kind of political issue, and we're going to see this again and again in this episode, um, the sample size for this particular experiment was slightly left of center, right? Uh, this wasn't a bunch of um, uh, bigots, or at least people who were self-identified bigots, right, doing this. This is people who generally align themselves with a party that is seen as more progressive, let's say. So, um, now there's an interesting variation here uh, that... Um, you have, you tell the story and you say that this person, you give them their name, but you also say that they're a successful college graduate or business owner, or you say that this is someone who's been convicted of assault, right? Um, and so there's a version where it's just, you know, Darnell went to the store, or it's Darnell who is a college graduate, right? And so Darnell just went to the store, we'll call that black neutral. Um, and then Connor, who is uh, convicted of assault, went to the store, right? We'll call that um, white criminal. Here's the thing. <laughs> the black neutral was seen as big as the white criminal, right? So when they were estimating the size, if it was a black character who was neutral, they said they're going to be X tall. If it was a white criminal, they also were that tall. Um, and there's this weird, like, 
And first of all, for the record, white men and black men in this country have the same average height. There's no scientific basis for thinking that the black neutral should be as tall as the white criminal. Um, but when, when people think about, and this is one of the things the experimenters talked about, and by the way, I'll link to, there's a ton of studies in this one, I'll link to all of them in the show notes on facebook.com slash popculturehappyhour, popculturehappyhour. That's where I got the idea for putting it on Facebook. That's why I said that. That's really funny. Anyway, you know what? Leaving that in. Um, <laughs> Facebook.com slash um, Cognitive Bias Podcast. There. That's the one. But feel free to go to the Pop Culture Happy Hour Facebook page. It's great. Anyway, <laughs> um, when people think about black men, the size and the danger go together, right? A big black man is inherently dangerous. That's sort of the, the cognitive leap people are making. Um, and, and this whole weird, like, equivalency of, like... X percent of black man equals X percent of white man. Like, we see this playing out in different studies, and we'll talk a little more about this in a second, how this plays out in jobs, but uh, for jobs in STEM fields, uh, women and minority candidates that have a 4.0 GPA are treated basically the same as white male candidates with 3.75 GPAs, right? So it takes a 4.0 GPA minority to equal um, a white male 3.75 GPA, right? Like, to get to an average white man, you need an exceptional black man. Like, that trope repeats itself. And what's really disturbing about that trope, and makes me think it is sort of inherently baked into slavery, is do you remember the three-fifths compromise, right? Which was technically a ploy by the South to get more votes, but, you know, inherently had this racist, racist notion that still kind of plays out cognitively, right? In, in studies like this. Um, so... By the way, this didn't just play out for black-sounding names. Right? They tried this out with Latino or East Asian-sounding names, and you pretty much saw the same pattern repeat itself. Now, since we'll be talking a lot about black-sounding names and white-sounding names, um, it's worth noting that this whole notion of names, you know, black parents naming their children non-white-sounding names is relatively recent, actually. Like, there's a lot of sort of assimilation prior to this. If you look at the 60s, black parents and white parents are basically giving their kids the, the same names, right? The same set of names. In the 70s, you get the black power movement, and you start to see this move toward more, you know, black-sounding, however you want to define that, uh, names. So you get your Jamals and your Darnells and all these names that, when you look at them, the picture in your head becomes a black person, as opposed to if I see James or, hey, my name, David Thomas, about the whitest name you can get, right? I am not white, um, but <laughs> but uh, my name, you wouldn't know that from my name, right? But there's plenty of names um, that kind of start to rise in popularity in the 70s where this becomes an experiment that you can even run, right? Um, so uh, another field you see this in is in school, right? So students with black-sounding names get labeled as trouble troublemakers faster than students with white-sounding names, and they did a, they call it like the black escalation effect. So if you have one infraction, right, um, black sounding name, white sounding name, you pretty much have the same reaction, right? They asked the teachers, okay, if you saw the one infraction and with this student or that student, and the only really difference was the name, the infraction was the same, like, how severely should they be punished, right? You know, what, what should be done? And the, the responses were pretty much the same after one infraction. After two infractions, all of a sudden, the Deshaun's or the Darnell's are more likely to be seen as a problem than the Greg's or the Jake's. Um, that's why they call it black escalation, right? It's once it goes beyond one um, offense that all of a sudden you see the black kid as the problem. And including, and this is really kind of troubling, right, how severely they should be punished, right? And we've already seen, like, there are statistics around how much more likely black students are to get punished and punished more severely than white students for the same infraction. You can kind of see where this comes from now. Um, going back to uh, job applicants, I was saying we were going to get back to that, um, Job applicants with black-sounding names are less likely to get an interview. 
Um, and the name of this um, uh, study kind of lets you know that this is across genders, right? So it's the name of the study is, Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lakeisha and Jamal? A Field Experiment on Labor Market Discrimination. And as the title implies, uh, yeah, they are. They are more employable. Um, so it, it, it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's disturbing. Um, so white names receive 50% more callbacks for interviews. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty distinct difference. Um, also, applicants living in better neighborhoods receive more callbacks, but not necessarily differing by race. So if you want to sort of equalize for race, live in a nice neighborhood. Right? You can have a black name, but as long as you live in a nice neighborhood, you'll, you'll get a callback. Um, so you can see how class actually is super wound up in all of this. Um... And this, by the way, like is a pattern we'll see. So you have federal contractors and employers who list equal opportunity employer right in their ad. Um, they were using ads to sort of you know uh, you know uh, see these jobs. Um, they discriminated as much as other employers. So just because someone says or touts their diversity, and we see this again and again with these studies, it really doesn't make any difference. They're just as discriminatory as the people who don't bring it up at all. Um, and there's a quote from the abstract which I just love because it's the most like understated like version of racism ever. It says. These results suggest that racial discrimination is still a prominent feature of the labor market. It's like, yeah, it is. Um, uh, companies, here's, here's another study that kind of shows you a variation on this and why this is kind of necessary. Um, companies are more than twice as likely to call minority applicants for interviews if they submit whitened resumes than candidates who are explicit about their race, right? So people are whitening their uh, resumes, you know, it's, I've, I talk sometimes about blind resumes and how that results in more equal treatment for resumes. Um, people are proactively sort of like taking out any reference to themselves that might indicate their race, right? And I have to imagine this is happening with gender as well, you know, and, and it, the sad part is it works, right? I had a friend do a post about um, doing this with Airbnb and like getting better results trying to find a place um, than if they revealed their race when they were trying to find a place in Airbnb. So it's, it's a sadly effective strategy. Um, so a related study, this isn't exactly the same thing, but it's interesting. So um, historically predominantly white institutions called HPWIs, which I guess are the opposite of HBCUs, um, are, you know, are actively trying to attract black talent, black applicants. But as long as they aren't too concerned about race. Like, so if in your application, you sort of talk about yourself as being kind of politically involved and very like, you know, aware and active in your culture and being in your race and proud of your race and like into like your blackness, um, you're actually less likely than if you sort of like whitewash it. So it's sort of like this university is saying like, um, yeah, we want black candidates, just not too black. Um, it's a thing like the, and, but it's sort of like that same version of, of, of like whitewashing, giving you better results. Um, you see this in public, um, service as well. So you have residents who have black sounding names requesting information from like sheriff's offices or school district or libraries, just other public services are less likely to get a response. So they tried this experiment with email where they were emailing these different public institutions for information, asking for requests for information. And if they used a white sounding name, they got better results. Um, by the way, uh, my wife, Nina, uh, who I had on the podcast uh, last season finale, um, is a neuropsychologist, um, and uh, she gave me a lot of um, insights here and, and looked up a lot of research. And the sad part is, by the way, so she was looking for this one particular study that I'll talk about in a sec, but 
in trying to find that study, she ran across like five other studies that also pointed out this like discrimination. It's just like, oh my God, it's so, the, the world is littered with these things. You can't, you, you'll just stumble over them if you try to look for one. Um, but anyway, this one particular one uh, Nina told me about, uh, if you are trying to get info about research opportunities before you apply to like a doctoral program, right? So this is in academia. You uh, you are more likely to get a response if you seem like a white male. So this was 6,500 professors at top uni U.S. universities from 89 different disciplines and 259 different institutions, right? So very broad, identical messages, but different names. And the faculty were considerably more responsive to Caucasian males than any other group, regardless of the race of the faculty member, the gender of the faculty member. Like, it didn't even matter, right? It wasn't like just a bunch of white dudes discriminating in favor of white dudes. It's white women, black women, you know, what, what, whoever, right? They would all favor the Caucasian male and respond to them more quickly than, than anybody else. Um, and it got worse if it was a higher-paying discipline or if it was a private institution, um, the interesting part here is that that pattern is reversed for fine arts. You're actually more likely to get a response if you're not a Caucasian male, if the discipline was fine arts. So there's that. Um, this is the one that just breaks my heart. Um, so this was another study, uh, needed pointed out to me. Um, so prior to 9-11, they took a sample of birth outcomes. I think mostly looking at birth weight, um, as an indicator of a, of a poor birth, birth outcome. Um, for Arab, women with Arabic-sounding names, you know, go to a hospital, and, and they, they looked at the six months after 9-11, 2000, 2000. So, you know, September 11, 2000, how are birth outcomes for women with Arabic-sounding names? And then post-9-11, right? So after six months after September, the six months after September 11, 2001, and they're worse. They're considerably worse. You were 34% more likely to have a low birth weight than in the same period the year before, right? If the infant had an Arabic-sounding name, there was a two-fold increase in the likelihood of a low birth rate, right? This is horrifying. And for a little clarity about mechanism here, right? Like, so there's already a lot of literature about how discrimination leads to stress, stress leads to per poor birth outcomes. And we talked, I think, in a couple episodes ago about how, like, you know, uh, black women have way worse birth outcomes in America than, than, than white women. Um, but so that's one element of it. And there's also an element of, you know, that's the one that in the study they kind of talk about as a potential contributor. Uh, we've talked before, um, they didn't mention this, but I have to imagine discrimination also leads to not being believed. This is a chronic problem for women of color in, in, um, in medicine, um, which can also lead to poor birth outcomes. Right. So either way though, just, it's so stark, Right, because that was one of the like key moments. It's rare that you can see a key moment in history where one group suddenly becomes discriminated against in a way that we were never before. But nine eleven was definitely one of those moments. But to see like women and babies being punished, right, <laughs> for the actions of terrorists and the racist reaction to that, right, that 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 they can be victims of that discrimination. This isn't just someone trying to get a job. This is someone trying to be in the world, <laughs> right, to exist as a baby, right. That's just frightening and devastating. Um, another um, another thing that 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 matters here, and, and and you can argue this is part of the mechanism here is um, there's this, something called the name pronunciation effect, 
and people with easier to pronounce names sort of do better in life. So people, when people are deciding who to vote for, right? Like all of these things matter. And um, easy to pronounce is obviously a cultural factor, right? So if you're living in a mostly white, you know, a white dominated culture, white sounding names tend to be easier to pronounce because that's what you're used to, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, it's easier to pronounce. And part of what's you know happening here is there's this sort of a cognitive you know fluency thing going on where the easier something is to process. Um, the more believable it is. So things that rhyme seem more true. Things that are easy to read seem more true. Um, and it's just that, you know, if it's, easy, if it's easier to process, your brain will favor it, right? Your brain's busy. You make things easy. Your brain will thank the thing for it. Um, so that goes to names, too. If it's easy to pronounce name, you know what? You're more trustworthy because my brain doesn't have to do a lot of work to keep up with pronouncing your name. Um, this, you know, obviously has huge results. And one of the interesting, um, the particular study I'll link to talks about how... Um, if you look at law firms, which you know should be these objective bastions or whatever, um, the if you go further up the ranks, the easier the pronounce, the the easier the names get to pronounce. So people with easy to pronounce names get like promoted higher than people with difficult to pronounce names in law firms. That's just a thing. Um, so one of the I think like one of the most extreme examples of this is stock prices, especially they looked at um, IPOs. Um, in particular, because you don't know that much about the stock as opposed to historically, you know, successful or um, Poor stocks, but uh, stocks with easier to pronounce names do better. <laughs> In fact, stocks with easier to pronounce ticker names, like you know those little three-letter initials, do better. So, like something that was launching called BAL would do better than something called BDL, right? Um, it's like that. We're that fickle <laughs> when it comes to um, just pronunciation um, uh, being something that makes us like things or not like things. Um, so, so that's that's all for that particular bias. Uh, but I really needed to talk about that because uh, so many examples kept popping up. Um, I have another announcement to make. Um, so this is going to be the last season of the Cognitive Bias podcast. Um, I have you know taken great pleasure in this, and it's been amazing. But uh, two things are happening. One. I'm kind of running out of biases. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of like psychological psychological phenomena out there, but I'm getting to the point where I'm even seeing myself like about to record an episode, and I'm like, oh wait, I did that already. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm kind of getting to the point where I think I've covered all the major ones and sort of a good body of work. Um, and the other thing is that I have this other podcast that I really, really want to do, um, that I really want to get into, and I sort of can't do two podcasts at once. Um, and I'll tell you more about that that podcast uh, soon, but. Um, but, uh, and also, um, I'm going to be working on a book. So, uh, you know, I uh, can't get into too much detail about it now, but that's another thing that's going to be taking up a lot of time and it is going to involve bias. So like, you know, fear not, there's more bias content coming, just not in podcast form. Um, <laughs> but for all of those reasons, it's a good time to kind of, you know, shutter this one. I may do like a one-off episode here or there. If something really amazing happens. Um, I did try to interview Danny Kahneman. So if he says yes, I am going to record that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the, this will be the final official season. Um, I am close to 100 episodes, so I'm going to at least get that far. I may be seven or so episodes away from that benchmark, so I'm going to at least record 100. So there's at least, you know, 
five or six more episodes to come. Um, but then after that, um, probably only a few more, if any. So I just wanted to let people know that now. Um, uh, and thank everyone so much in advance for all of the love you have given this podcast and all the opportunities and doors it's opened up, including many talks and the book in question. So um, thank you all for that. But I wanted to give you a heads up so it wasn't like get to the last episode and it's like, hey, guess what? We're done. Bye. Um, I figured I'd give some kind of warning. Anyway, um, this has been amazing, and for this week, this has been the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and I will see you next time.